Greetings, travellers, and indeed, gruntings, tromboners. I am your mildly tolerable and semi-competent host, Director Overtect Verbistect Loquinist Voxtect, R.J. Bailey, and you are most welcome indeed to this seventh episode of the Shoreline of Infinity science fiction podcast, Soundwave. A quartet of delights await you in this instalment. We're kicking off by letting Ben Blow and fellow Warhammer enthusiast tell us the story The Bee Apple, written by K.E. McPhee, which has the dual benefits of being an excellent audio story and the fact B rhymes with McPhee. Then we'll follow up with some poetry in the form of South, written by Marge Simon and performed by Sue Guyford. After that, I'll be chatting with Dr. Pippa Goldschmidt in this episode's Sonic Space. Pippa is the author of the novel The Falling Sky, the short story collection The Need for Better Regulation of Outer Space, and co-editor of the anthology I Am Because You Are, among other works, and is also accomplished in the field of straight-up science, as well as science of the fictional variety. Our closing track this week is by Emmy James, or Emi James, I've only ever sitten... I mean, I've now I say it, it, it could be Emi Yames. Who am I to say? But I'm just going to go with Emi James. Yeah, that sounds about right. Emi James, the instrumental solo project from the vomit-inducingly talented Gordon Johnston, from previously featured synthy dream-pop band L-Space. So, without further ado or farting about... The Apple Bee by K. E. McPhee Narrated by Ben Blow There it was again. A muffled buzzing coming from somewhere inside the station. And now that the noise had reached his conscious awareness, the man was unable to ignore it. He eased himself from his cross-legged sitting position. It had been some years since he'd been able to stretch his joints into a full lotus, and perhaps, some day soon, even sitting like this on a hard floor would be too much. He let out a long breath, loosening his shoulders with slow, circular movements, and shaking his legs to restore their circulation. His feet were tingling, just as they used to when he first began a daily meditation practice so many years ago. Full circle, he murmured to himself, and then he went to find the source of the buzzing. As he'd suspected, the noise was coming from a bee. He found it spinning on the floor of the kitchenette area just beneath the open window. His knees let out two loud pops as he crouched down to examine the insect. The bee had a badly damaged right wing and was clearly unable to fly. Without rising from his squat, the man reached up for a drinking glass, was standing on the bench top next to the sink, then laid it sideways on the floor. With a deft sweep of his fingers, he propelled the bee into the glass. He stood up again, holding the edge of the bench for balance, and put the glass back where he found it. First, some breakfast. 
He found it amusing that he still used different words for different meals, breakfast, lunch and dinner. The food itself varied not at all, a relentless medley of potatoes, maize, barley and, of course, apples, plus the occasional ancient ration pack for nutritional balance. He sometimes thought wistfully of other plant foods, what he'd give for a last bean or berry. But the variety was limited by practicality. The bees were apple bees, so apart from the apples, only self-pollinating crops would have lasted this long. Apples. He looked out of the window towards the tracks of apple orchards sheltering in the semicircular valley. When he'd started here, the orchard had been small and clinical. Over the years, by collecting pips, nurturing seedlings and developing fresh soil beds, he'd extended its range tremendously, until he finally ran out of irrigation tubing for the solar distillers. Quite early on, he'd abandoned the neatly organised rows and began planting saplings wherever he fancied, red by green, by yellow, eaters next to cookers. A rambling orchard now produced more apples than he could ever hope to use. Macoons and Macintoshes and Cortlands, Criterions, Galas and Gravensteins. Some of these varieties were rare even when they were first planted. By now they might be the only remaining examples of their kind. Sharp, sweet, white-fleshed, pink-fleshed, smooth-skinned or russet. He knew them all. He knew them by growth habits and by taste. He scraped some of the potatoes he'd cooked two days ago into a bowl and then ate them standing up at the bench. Lately he'd been trying to cook less often and in larger quantities. It was more energy efficient that way, and it meant that he always had some edible food on hand. The cabin's solar array was still working well, but the storage batteries attached to it were now almost useless, having been charged and drained for many thousands of cycles beyond their intended life span. When the sun was shining strongly, he had full power, but at other times he had to use his electrical equipment sparingly, switching one thing off when he wanted to use another. He had no power at all at night, so he'd gotten into the habit of waking at dawn and returning to his bed as soon as the sun fell behind the mountainous ridges at the back of the valley. He looked at the potatoes remaining in the big pot, which looked no different than they had the day he'd cooked them. The absence of airborne yeasts and moulds and other microbes had turned out to be a blessing, although it meant that the soil needed laborious preparation and treatment before it could grow anything. It also allowed his produce, once harvested, to be stored for many seasons. Facing a growing surplus of apples, he'd started using them to make artworks, laying out huge mosaic apple pictures down on the old transit pad. His first works had been simple geometric patterns, but as time went by he grew more confident and he began making representational images, people, places, animals that he remembered. He'd leave each picture until it became over-familiar and then he'd gather up the apples, stack them back into colour-sorted piles and begin anew. It was very satisfying and the picture work had become a highlight of his waking hours. His current apple picture was nearly finished. They planned to work on it again today, but first there was the bee to deal with. He smiled. He'd grown irrationally fond of bees, and now felt almost fatherly towards them. He needed them, and it made him happy when they occasionally needed him in return. He put down his empty bowl and picked up the drinking glass in which the bee was still circling aimlessly. 
held up the glass at eye level and inspected the bee from various angles. Apart from the damaged wing, it seemed to be in good condition. That was encouraging. He hated to lose even a single bee, although inevitably their numbers were lower now than they had been when he and the hive first arrived. There was some natural attrition, and there were no other hives on the island that might be used to boost his own bee population. The bees were just another limited resource, another challenge to get by with what he had, to make things last for as long as he could, for as long as he himself could last. He'd been lucky. He knew that. No man would survive in good health for long on a diet of potatoes, maize and apples. The station had been equipped with a year's freeze-dried rations, but they wouldn't have kept him alive all these years. He was fortunate that some half-prescient militocrat had concealed a storage facility on the far side of the island. Half-prescient, because while it had clearly been correct to anticipate disaster, nonetheless, whatever disaster had come was evidently so unexpected or so overwhelming that the stored materials were never accessed. He found the bunker a few weeks after satellite communication with the main outpost had abruptly ceased. By then his emotions had built up into a roiling tangle that no amount of daily meditation could calm. Frustration at not knowing what had happened, fear that whatever nameless peril had befallen the outpost might also be heading towards his island, and a growing panicky suspicion that the others had departed because of some greater calamity elsewhere, and had simply and permanently left him behind. In the end, not knowing what else to do, he packed up a hiking sack with several weeks' provisions, took the satellite radio and set off around the coastline. Perhaps he secretly hoped that the communication failure was due to some local vagary, that the satellite radio might burble back into life if he travelled far enough from the station. But how far could he travel, a man on a small island, surrounded by an entire planetary hemisphere of ocean? He had no flyer, no boat. He knew he could go nowhere, in the end, except back where he started. After three days of walking, he'd reached the far wide end of the pear-shaped island. He was on the previously unseen side of the peaks that ring the station's valley. Back there, near the station, the horseshoe of peaks gently subsided into low hills running out to meet a flat, slender peninsula. At this end of the island they were relentlessly jagged with sheer cliffs and scree slopes that plunged directly into the ocean. He was glad he hadn't tried to travel here by more linear route over the ridges. He was less pleased that he would have to travel back the way he came, for there could be no safe route through the wide, beachless headland. It was the very angularity of the landscape at this end of the island that led him to discover the storage facility. The building itself was well concealed behind an extended arm of the cliff, but it was given away by an unnaturally flat platform at the mouth of the hidden enclosure. Reaching the top of a jumbled pile of boulders, he spotted the platform at once, lying below him like a beacon. It was clearly a landing pad, and he felt a leap of excitement. He scrambled down the far side of the boulder pile and picked his way towards the flattened area with as much haste as as could be managed on a surface of slippery, shifting rocks. And when he reached the pad, he bent down and placed his hands on it for a long and reverent moment. It was a connection with his fellow humanity, however tangential. Then he stood up and circled about, seeking the building that he knew instinctively would be somewhere nearby.
It didn't take him long to find it. The storage facility was a low, windowless bunker with its back and sides hard up against the containing cliffs. The door was sealed, of course, and he made several attempts to unlock it with a regular ident, his hand movements growing shakier and more urgent each time. Every effort was greeted with nothing more than the flashing of a small red light on the locking pad. At last he fell to beating on the featureless metal door with his fists, and then he collapsed to his knees and bellowed. The pent emotion of the past weeks finally bursting out of him, wild and overwhelming. Only when the frustration and grief were spent did he remember the emergency codes. Using them would set off alarms back at the main outpost, which might be his salvation, if his radio was merely broken or might bring disaster if the base had fallen to some hostile force. Whatever the case, he knew there was no way he could simply turn around now and go back to the station without trying to find out what the bunker was and what had happened to his colleagues. He barely hesitated before requesting an emergency code from his ident and presenting it to the lock. This time a yellow light lit up steadily and the door slid open. The first thing he discovered in the rack-filled space was the food. Endless boxes of freeze-dried provisions, just like the ones in the stores back at the station, only far more plentiful. Relieved by this unexpected bounty, he wasn't prepared for what he found in the rearmost rows of shelving. When he discovered the racks upon racks of weaponry and ammunition, his whole body constricted in an upsurge of rage. Their mission was scientific. The outpost on the far side of the globe, his agricultural station here on the island, they existed to study the planet, to assess its suitability for habitation. To find these filthy instruments of harm, how dare they? How dare they? With his teeth clenched, he scoured the bunker for anything that might help him re-establish contact with the main outpost. But there was nothing. Eventually, he slumped down against the bunker's smooth plascrete walls and tore open a ration pack. He ate it distractedly, barely tasting the balanced but utterly bland nutrition that was already far too familiar. He didn't know what the future would bring, but he knew what he had to do, and he would start tomorrow. The bunker's provisioners had thoughtfully, if somewhat inexplicably, provided a carton of self-inflating diggies. When he woke, after a poor night's sleep ridden with anxious dreams, he unpacked a dinghy and assessed the nearby coastline. The mountain's precipitous descent to the coast continued below the tideline, and the sea became very deep within a short distance of the shore. He nodded to himself, then tethered his dinghy and returned to the bunker. He found a trolley, but decided it would be useless outside on the surface of broken rock. Instead, armload by armload, he brought weapons and ammunition down to the dinghy, and when it was full, he paddled out to where the seafloor was invisible. Then gun following crate following canister, he dropped the items one by one over the side, and watched with satisfaction as they plunged away into the cloudy, alkaline depths. When the dinghy was empty... He paddled back to shore and did it again, and again, and again. It became a rhythm, wake, eat, dump weapons, and he lost count of the days it took him to clear the weaponry out of the bunker, the number of cyclic voyages he took in the little inflatable. His body ached, his hands were blistered, and his skin was cracked and weeping. Places where the mildly caustic sea had repeatedly splashed it, but he kept on, his mind gripped by his anger 
and by the necessity of doing something. When he finally departed on his return journey to the station, leaving the door wedged open by a large boulder and hauling as many ration pouches as he could carry, he left behind him a storehouse that had been cleared of every scrap of militaria. Afterwards, when he thought back on his first visit to the bunker, he saw his actions as a kind of justified madness. They were the small but necessary protest of one far-flung man against the human folly that infested an entire galaxy. It was only now, as an old and necessarily patient man, that he finally admitted his real reason for coming to the station. When he signed up for the mission, he'd seen his enthusiasm as a last flush of late-youth optimism or pioneering spirit, a desire to help create a new and better place that could provide a home for a real community. Now, however, he could see that even as a younger man, he was already sickened by his own species and its seemingly inexhaustible capacity for tribalism and cruelty, for short-sighted greed. He'd come here to escape it all, to be alone, and if he ended up far more alone than he'd ever anticipated, perhaps it was really what he'd wished for all along. He had the bees and the apple trees, the twinning potato plants and the elegant rows of corn that grew higher than his head. The island provided an exterior peace, and gradually, gently, he developed an inner peace to match it. He was content. His breakfasting done, the man carried the bee glass across his work table, set it down and switched on the lamps. He charged up a whisker-like stunner and then tipped the bee onto the work surface and gave it a jolt to keep it still. The telescoping arm of the micro-manipulator array squeaked a little as he pulled it across in front of him, centering the camera on the bee before inserting his hands into the sensory gloves. These days he used the maximum inertia setting. He found that the resistance helped to compensate for the increasing tremor in his hands. He chose a wedge and a micro-tweezer and lowered them until they were just touching the bee. The magnifying screen and the gloves were so familiar to him now, had become such an extension of his own body, that their artifice immediately disappeared from his perception. It felt like he was working on a cat-sized insect with cutlery-sized tools. Deftly, he slipped the wedge into the cleft where the bee's damaged wing met its body and tilted it back and forth until it reached the correct angle, and then he took the micro-tweezer and grasped the wing near the base. In one smooth movement, he tweaked it out of the bee's thorax, then contemplated it with satisfaction. Even when a wing was unsalvageable, it was still gratifying to remove it without damaging it further. He dropped the wing to one side, then tapped out the finger code that opened the work table sealed compartment. Here were his spare parts, some new, some scavenged from bees that had been damaged beyond repair. Body shells, left and right wings, leg assemblies, pollination snouts, sensor arrays, processing units like crystalline grains of rice. It was ironic, really. His careful... Recycling meant that there was enough replacement parts here to keep the hive functioning long beyond the time when he'd be here to provide the repair service. With the fine tweezers, he picked out a single wing and drew it back towards the bee. Again, he used the wedge to open up the wing joint, and then he manoeuvred the wing into place. 
feeling it click home via the glove's sensitive haptics. The bee would be as good as new. He pulled his hand out of the gloves and pushed the manipulator array aside. Having been out of the sunshine for a while, the bee would be low on power. He drew down the charge lamp and switched it on to give the bee a boost before he de-stunned it and returned it to its work, to its life. He'd always thought of these tiny mechanical insects as having lives, however absurd the notion. They seemed no less living and far more responsive to their environment than the inert floating rafts of algae-like microorganisms that were this planet's only indigenous inhabitants. What would it be like to be reincarnated as an apple bee? He imagined it would be both purposeful and peaceful. In the years of his Buddhist practice, he'd struggled with the whole concept of reincarnation, though the idea of karma seemingly grimly self-evident as humanity's increasing self-belligerence brought it nothing but suffering. Now, in the same way that long-submerged childhood memories had begun floating up into his mind, his adopted spirituality seemed to be giving way to snatches of his parents' religious teachings. A phrase here or there, the image of a garden a fall from grace. He wondered occasionally if any of his family still lived, if any of his people who had persecuted and been persecuted in turn survived. Did any humans remain at all apart from him? He had no way of knowing. Perhaps history was like an old man's mind, slowly turning back to where it came from, ending where it began. Perhaps it was all just a long, a repetitious madness starting and ending with a fall. He sat for a long time, looking out the window at the hazy yellow sky while the bee charged up beneath the lamp. He'd long ago given up looking for approaching transports, but he still sometimes caught himself looking for clouds. If this planet had been blessed with any, he knew he would have returned to one of his boyhood pursuits, spending happy hours lying on his back in the orchard, watching them drift across the sky, slowly changing shape, from one fantastical form to another. Well, no matter. He could still close his eyes in the warm sunshine and remember them. The bee, too, would enjoy the sunshine in its own micro-mechanical way. He picked up the stunner and gave the bee another tiny zap to de-stun it. Then before the bee could take off, he cupped his hands around it and picked it up, enjoying the tickle as it buzzed within the small space between his palms. He walked to the main door, which slid away as he approached, and walked out onto the broad deck in front of the station, towards the thriving cultivation spread out in front of him. The man paused at the railing and opened his hands, and the apple bee flew away, back toward the pastel blossom trees. He looked out over the long tracts of orchard, their healthy tapestry of pink and white and pale new green. If it weren't for us... This place could have been a paradise, he thought. Then he smiled, thinking of the bees he would leave behind, until the last bee failed and the orchard began its inevitable descent into senescence and death. The hive would continue in its sturdy labours, serving the spring blossom, bringing crops of perfect, forever untasted apples to the trees. It could have been a paradise, he thought again. And just for a little while, it will be. 
A cosy story there about how paradise can only be achieved for a brief moment between the entire removal of humanity and the death of all known things. But the question is, which is the better paradise? The paradise in which all weapons have been eliminated like in this story, or the paradise in which those weapons never existed in the first place? Let me know. Genuinely, it's a, I think it's a, quite an interesting question. Uh, is it a paradise more paradisical if, if, if someone or beings there have made the conscious action to remove evil from it instead of the paradise where people never invented those evil things to begin with? Let me know. Seriously. Uh on Twitter, at RJ Bailey. I'm very interested in these kinds of questions. Or send an email to rjbailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. Indeed, if you would like to advertise on this very podcast, then that's the address to email about it as well. I'd also like to take a brief moment to tell you about the other live performances that the regular Soundwave performers are involved in since festival season is approaching, and you can see our crew live and in person in the following events. Debbie Cannon, who you'll remember narrated Keeping the Peace in Episode 0, the poem Starscape in Episode 1, and Something Fishy in Episode 5, will be performing at the Buxton Fringe from the 7th to the 12th of July at the Green Man Gallery, and at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe at the Scottish Poetry Library on the 7th, 9th, 10th and 13th and 14th of August in Christmas at Camelot, a monstrous green warrior issues an unwinnable challenge to Arthur's finest night. But what if the story was retold by the woman at its heart? It's a one-woman version of the medieval poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Danielle Farrow will be appearing as Titiana. Titiana? I don't know. In Where Do Fairies Come From? Danielle performed A Choice for the Golden Age in Episode 0, the poem Back in Time in Episode 2, and An Infinite Number of Me in Episode 5. That's awful that I don't know, isn't it? And that I've not been bothered to look it up. And my job's an audiobook narrator by day, a voice, and my job is to know how to pronounce things. But I, I wouldn't normally look it up. But I'm li- I, I didn't sleep well last night. It's a fairly light look at fairies and how their depiction has changed over time from the fairies' perspective with Titiana slash Titiana, Oberon and Puck. That's at Paradise in Augustine's in Edinburgh from August the 2nd to the 17th. And Ben Blow will be appearing in Cadaver Synod. You've just heard him read The Apple Bee as well as Apocalypse Beta Test Survey in Episode 4 and the poem L5 in Episode 5. Do you see what I did there? In the real-life story of Cadaver Synod, the Pope makes legal history by having his predecessor exhumed and put on trial. The charges seem petty, but powerful forces are demanding this act of political theatre. To the Roman people, it is nothing more than a sacrilegious and shallow PR stunt, one fated to backfire when the mob's sense of propriety is ignored. RFT returned to the fringe with a brand new black comedy exploring the relationship between power and the past, the dangers of ignoring the sensibilities of the masses, and just where one finds a new nose at three in the morning. That's the 19th to the 25th of August at Venue 18, Sweet Grass Market, as part of the Edinburgh Fringe. So please do let me know if you're going to see any of these shows at the usual channels. Uh, We'd love to know and say hello.
on with the show. South by Marge Simon. Read by Sue Guyford. You promised me no problems when the temperatures dropped. Assured me that we were prepared. Holding hands, we watched the great migration south. With synthetic skins, cryo foods and prefab domes, you said we couldn't lose. There was little need to leave the domes. Safe from the fierce glacial winds, we made love on autumn-coloured furs. Yet you were the first to grow restless, to stand all night at the southern window following the great move of stars. We shared the bitter smoke of silence, until one morning you were gone. I waited for you, my fingers tracing love symbols on the icy glass. I slept with the red wing of your guitar. Then, moon shadow tall, you came home. Inside the door, I didn't know your eyes. This year, I read while you play solitaire. Our conversations are textured with frost. I ache for your laughter, the taste of grass on your skin, a bouquet of crocuses in a blue vase. If you're enjoying the poems such as that or the stories or the interviews or indeed my astro waffle, then we would love to know about it. When you've got a moment, please do head over to iTunes and leave us a review on there. Even if you don't listen to iTunes, you can still leave a review there. It would make us feel very happy as well as help other people learn about Soundwave, uh, which is a secondary concern. Uh compared to my own desperate need for validation from others. Another way you can support the podcast is by heading over to our Patreon page and selecting one of the levels, starting with Soundwave Podcast. I have had a couple of people wonder where their benefits for the podcast are, and it turns out they had selected the wrong level and chosen a magazine pledge level. If you want to support the podcast, make sure you click on a Soundwave Podcast level. Next in line, we've got Sonic Space, and this, ladies and gentlemen and beyond, was an absolute pleasure to conduct. I'd say more, but that would make the introduction given in Sonic Space rather redundant, wouldn't it? I will say, if you liked this, then please do consider joining the Soundwave podcast at the Receptor Interralist level, unlocking the longer version of this interview. It was a real highlight of mine, and you'll also be able to get the podcasts a week early. Welcome to Sonic Space. I am here with Dr. Pippa Goldschmidt. She's a science fiction writer, originally from London, now moved up to the beautiful, summery, warm, dry, 
or almost like arid Edinburgh in summer. Uh, she's the author of, a, of the collection The Need for Better Regulation of Outer Space and the novel The Falling Sky about an astronomer who discovers the universe and loses her mind. She's also got a PhD in astronomy and worked at Imperial College for several years, as well as having a MLIT in creative writing from Glasgow University. She's the winner of the New Writers' Award 2012 from the Scottish Book Trust and Creative Scotland, and in 2016 won the Suffrage Science Award that honours women in science. Dr Pippa Goldschmidt, uh, you are allowed to swear on this podcast, by the <laughs> way. So I will welcome you to Sonic Space by saying shit. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's great to be here uh, on this, as you said, this warm, sunny, uh, beautiful Edinburgh summer day. Isn't it gorgeous? Uh, it's just unbelievable. I, I hope uh, listeners can get a sense of our sarcasm. From, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from uh, it's been a pretty bad week, I have to it's say. It's been horrendous. Yes, I'm a I'm a I'm a metalhead myself. I love heavy metal, and I'm delighted that this year's download festival lineup did not appeal to me at all because I've seen pictures and like the mud is so wet the mud is like um like it's look, like looking at smooth glossy like ganache chocolate just covering <laughs> yeah. covering the floor yeah. of download festival yeah. looks horrific yeah yesterday i got so fed up i spent three days at home trying to write things yesterday i got so fed up i actually went out into the rain for a walk for an hour really and it was one of those utterly british summer <laughs> walks where there's just the rain was just teeming down i was in my little sort of hoodie anorak uh-huh. thing, trudging along the beach at musselborough where i live mm-hmm. and and just like looking down at the ground because you couldn't look anywhere else because like the water would just be like running down your face yeah. and it was just miserable frankly beautiful yes. british summertime <laughs> scottish summertime i um i some I, occasionally okay here's a science fiction thing for your listeners now if you're wondering uh where the sci-fi talk is i have like a big anorak but not uh, sorry a rain poncho mm. like with a peaked hood and i wear my, i wear a baseball cap when i go walking in the rain because it keeps the rain off my sunglasses did you see Star Wars Rogue One? No. All right. Well, for listeners, like, <laughs> that's what Jin Erso wears, the hero of that, when she's out in the rain in the forest. And when I'm walking on Gustafin Hill, I do like to pretend I'm her in my head, like, oh, that's cool. hero of Rogue One, uh, when I'm walking my dog Harley. Yeah. who is currently in the room enjoying a fake bone. <laughs> Bless her. After um, we took... Sorry, go on. Yeah, so perhaps yeah, perhaps this is the answer, just to sort of imagine ourselves as the heroes of like science fiction films yeah. or books. Very dramatic. Yes. I listen to audiobooks as well a lot when I'm yeah. walking, so it's very atmospheric when you're up there and it's raining and no one else is around. Yes. So you started off, uh, it seems, in su- more science-y than fiction-y, where, when you were, I assume this, this kind of started when you were quite young. What came first, the science or the science fiction? It's really hard to answer that because both really came at the same time. But I was a typical product of English education um, in the, a long time ago, because I'm quite old. So in the 80s, we had to choose at school whether we were going to do science or art. Right. And there's absolutely no way you could mix the two. Uh-huh. And I loved reading and writing. I read all the time at home, everything I could lay my hands on. I grew up in a house full of books. Thank you, parents, for doing that. But I also really loved maths and physics and I wanted to sort of study literature and maths and physics and my school just burst out laughing and said, well, of, course, of course you can't do that you know you're some kind of idiot uh-huh. but they did allow me 
to do maths and physics and German because German was a scientific language that oh. would be helpful to you in your scientific career. So in that way, at least I did manage to kind of smuggle a bit of literature mm-hmm. and art into my school days uh, when I was doing A-levels. But yeah, I did physics at university, physics and maths and astronomy, um, but I always really loved reading and I did a little bit of writing on the side, but... Um, never really sort of thought about it very much. It was just like a bit of a hobby. Sure. Um, but when I so I did my PhD here at Edinburgh at the Royal Observatory on Blackford Hill, which was a great place to study. And I was yeah, really it's gorgeous. There. Yeah, it was really sort of interesting community. It felt like a really creative community of scientists and engineers all come together. It's quite a large place. A lot of people work there. People from different backgrounds, uh, different countries, different scientific disciplines. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that and I didn't really get that so much at Imperial there was something kind of lacking um when I was a postdoc there in the astronomy group so I started writing more and I think I started writing more in my sort of mid-20s to sort of compensate for the fact that I wasn't finding my job so interesting right um, and I realised that I could use fiction to sort of explore science. Right, okay. Um, and that's when it kind of, this idea sort of took off in my head. Is it like a way of like just talking it out with yourself and writing it down? Kind of. I realised that when I was actually doing the astronomy, there was a lot of stuff that didn't really get talked about, like mm-hmm. the emotions, how it feels to go off to a distant observatory sure. in a place like Chile or Australia, how it actually feels to look at this data and not quite understand what you're looking at, mm. which you can never really confess to, because of course you <laughs> know everything, you're a scientist, yeah. scientists know everything. But of course there's a huge amount of doubt and uncertainty, and you're getting things wrong all the time, you're making mistakes. I made mistakes all the time. I wasn't a very, wasn't really a very good scientist. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to explore that in fiction, and it didn't seem to be much fiction around that really did look at the sort of like inner lives of scientists. Yeah. And you get biographies, of course, and I do really like reading biographies of uh, famous scientists, but they're always like the really famous ones. They're mm-hmm. always like the brilliant ones who like, like who? yeah, like Einstein, for example. Right. I've got a fantastic biography of Einstein by Walter Isaac, which is brilliant. I really love reading that book. Um, Got another one uh, about Oppenheimer, uh, the guy who was the di- director of the Manhattan Project mm-hmm. during the war. And these books are fascinating because they do give you an insight, but only into the sort of scientific genius. Sure. And most scientists are not geniuses. Oh man, that's a shit. Well, <laughs> you've right, firstly you've shattered my illusions. Um, secondly, Oppenheimer, you would have thought that would have been like packed with emotion. Like, absolutely yeah. packed. It. Yeah. Is it, right, please confirm or, or re- like, bust a myth. Did he really say, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds? Yeah, he really did. So, yeah, I mean, to be fair, that is packed with emotion. That biography, I mean, his story is extraordinary. Mm. For anyone who doesn't know it, he was a brilliant theoretical physicist from America who came to Europe to study in the 20s. Um, he fetched up at Cambridge first, mm. where there's this persistent story that he tried, he had some kind of breakdown, and he tried to poison his PhD supervisor with a poisoned apple. Wow. Yes. And so they quietly shuffled him off to Göttingen, where he did much better. And then he ended up working in um, sort of theory of black holes, but he was also, as I said, the director for the Manhattan Project. And then he was accused of being a communist after the war, so he lost his security clearance. So yeah, you're right. His story is just packed with emotion. And I've written actually short stories about that too. But he's still... 
Um, he is not your typical scientist. Sure. And I really wanted to explore that world of what it felt just to be a sort of lowly postdoc, sort of stuck in the sort of catacombs of Imperial College, sort of like trudging away, you know, sort of on the sort of data yeah. mining type experience. So just just for context as well, if people don't know the Manhattan Project, essentially it was the um, it was the uh, atom bomb, yes, wasn't it? That's right. It was the American and Allied project to create an atom bomb, ostensibly to drop on, Ger- on Nazi Germany, actually. But of course, then they uh, decided to, to use it on Japan. I didn't know it was originally to drop on Nazi Germany. Yes, that's that right. first, like that would a make for a fascinating alternate history fiction book if the atom bomb was dropped on Germany. Yeah. Secondly, why didn't they drop it on Germany? Um, I think because Germany uh, surrendered. Uh, oh, okay. Because the Allied invasion of Europe was successful. And so by the time the bomb was ready, and of course a lot of the people working on this project were actually refugees from Nazi Germany right. and from uh, the rest of Europe. So they were very much of the mind that they had to sort of help in the war effort against Germany. And when a decision was made by Harry Truman in uh, 1940, in summer 1945, after Germany had already surrendered to use it on Japan, I think it came as a complete shock to most of the scientists working on it. When you said uh, you wanted, you you wrote about the experience of um, people quietly uh, in the halls moving around. Uh, moving around, attending to their studies. You conjured a very monk-like existence uh, in my head. I just imagined people, because I've, you know, I've been down to Oxford University and some of it is like, you know, monastery, uh, especially the squares and the quads and stuff. Um, uh, Is it monk-like? Because I have this image of people in, like, habits, like, going around quietly, uh, you know, like something out of CAD file. (laughs) It's not exactly monk-like, partly because it's um, it's no longer entirely male, although when I was a student in postdoc, it was mostly male. Mm-hmm. So the, the few women around were kind of oddities in a way. Sure. Uh, Imperial College is not really a monastery. I mean, it's, um, it's very modern. The physics department is, is mostly a very sort of modern 60s-type office block mm. in Kensington, mm-hmm. where you're surrounded by pubs and cafes and what have you. Sure. So on the surface of it, it's, it's not exactly sort of a very monk like but in some ways I worked in a tiny little office with a, uh, a tiny little desk and it felt like all of us postdocs were sort of not exactly locked away but all beavering away in our little cell like offices to sure. um, uh, to analyze our data and it had it did have a sort of odd atmosphere to it at night time the corridors rolled on and on and you had this feeling that the place was like simultaneously empty but also full of these like quietly beavering people sure. the sort of secrets of the universe so it was a it was a curious place to work and I think some of that is um, what kind of inspired me to write in a sense it almost sounds hive like yeah it was a bit of a hive like existence um, I'm not sure how connected the hive were to right, each other. yeah <laughs> so you you, you, you found um, writing was a way to kind of work out your what's happened now is Harley is going to say hello <laughs> my dog uh, to Pippa uh, so we're having a Harley break um, Harley do you want to lie down lie down good girl so you say that writing was a writing fiction was kind of a way to cope with the job you were doing at the time uh, yeah so 
did you was there a moment when you were writing and you went actually um I prefer this. Do you prefer it? <laughs> That's a really good question. So, yeah, the job I was doing at the time, I should probably say a bit more about that. I was a mm-hmm. post-op at Imperial. I was working on images of the sky data taken from telescopes and satellites to look at really distant galaxies and objects called quasars, which are galaxies with black holes in the centre, supermassive black holes that make the galaxy around them very bright. And I was finding it increasingly it felt like being a sort of small cog in a large wheel Mm. that you were allocated your task in this huge project Mm. and uh, there wasn't much room for manoeuvre or imagination and I was always someone who really liked coming up with the idea for an experiment and then actually carrying out the experiment never seemed like that much fun <laughs> and so I got to a state where I had all this data sort of languishing in my office because I go off and get more data because it seemed like a fun thing to do and then when it actually came to analysing the data that was kind of difficult, both difficult and really boring. So I was um, it sort of not really having a very good time at Imperial and thinking what should I do next you know is this how I'm going to spend the rest of my life Mm. and I could see how academic life works you sort of if you're successful at the lowest level it's a bit like being in the game you're you're able to sort of jump up to the next level until you sort of made Nirvana or being a professor (laughs) and I just thought to myself I've never I've never really been sure that I wanted to do this for the rest of my life I just did a PhD because it seemed like a fun thing to do at the time yeah so I did start writing more, and fiction was a good way out, but I was only in my late 20s or so, and I had no idea. I didn't know what I was doing when I was writing. I was just writing, uh, as anyone does when they first start writing. So I knew I had to get a proper job, so I actually joined the civil service um, as a sort of science policy advisor, and I worked in outer space policy for a bit, uh, which I really liked. And that was interesting because it seems on the surface of it even less imaginative Mm. than scientific work and yet there's something kind of curiously satisfying about the sort of problem solving aspect of it and also in the civil service there's never any pretense you know you're a small cog in a large machine right yeah there's never any pretense that you're going to be like a sort of like you know someone sort of brilliant who who changes the world Mm -hmm. so you just have a job and you get on with it and curiously that kind of freed me up to do much more writing and it was when I was in the civil service working pretty hard on space policy competition policy and all sorts of other aspects but I also that kind of allows my brain to perhaps think more about how to write fiction and I spent more time and I became more serious about writing and curiously it was because I think I was more distant from the astronomy and academic job that I was able to look back on it and think about exactly what aspects of it I wanted to explore in my fiction so that's when it really started taking off. So was it liberating then to become a civil servant, to have that kind of acceptance of I am a cog in a machine? It kind of was, actually, yes. Although I don't know what that says about me, that I find it liberating <laughs> to, to join a civil service. But yeah, I mean, I did a lot of different jobs in the civil service. I worked in lots of different policy areas, and some of them I really hated, but some of them I really liked. Mm. And in the civil service, you're always working together as a team. It's never isolated individual work. And I kind of like that too. And again, I've drawn upon that in my short stories, what it feels like 
to work in a policy area that you don't really know anything about. Right, yeah. For example, like outer space. Uh-huh. Like, you know, you're sitting in an office somewhere in the middle of London and you're writing policy papers and you're trying to regulate outer space. I mean, does that make any sense? Really? So that's good fodder for fiction. Too. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you, when you, just going back to when you first started writing, when, like, when did you first start writing? Like, did you get, was there a period where you went, I've got a good idea for a story, actually? And then was it gestating for a while and you sit down? I know it's a hard moment to kind of like, it kind of just fades into existence, doesn't it? Yeah, I can't actually say when I first really started writing, but somehow I started writing a novel mm-hmm. uh, when I was still a postdoc in, uh, in Imperial, and it wasn't anything to do with astronomy, it was about something else entirely, and of course, like many first novels, it was complete rubbish, but I was enjoying writing it, I was enjoying just getting the words out onto paper, the yeah. idea that I could create a story, and I never had any expectations for it, um, I never thought of sending it off anywhere it was just like for me and for myself although bizarrely I did have a friend of a friend who was a famous writer and she persuaded me to send it off to her literary agents who of course turned it down flat because it was it was rubbish I'm relieved you said that because I'd be like oh god <laughs> too it's too successful if you just picked it up straight away exactly and it was actually at least 15 years before I ever actually got anything published Mm -hmm. Uh, and I didn't really it wasn't really what I was after I was just enjoying writing and I remember the first time that I spent an entire weekend on a short story and I just loved the idea that I'd spent all Saturday and Sunday writing a story and I'd finished it by the end of the weekend yeah and it was a really nice feeling. And again, I never it was wasn't a very good story. I never really did anything with it. But it was just you know it was mine. I made sure. It. <laughs> um, so it sounded like you you went in quite deep with starting with the novel. Yeah. Jumping <laughs> like go big or go home. What was it about? Oh, it was... Well, I think a lot of people do that. They just say, oh, I'm going to write a novel. Yeah, because that's what books are. Yeah, exactly. That's what stories are. It's almost like you don't recognise that there are more ways to tell a story with prose than novels when you're younger. That's right. And to be fair, it was all that I was reading at the time. Mm -hmm. So it kind of made sense that I was going to write a novel. And I was in a writer's group that uh, met once a week. It was... It was quite a good idea on the face of it. Um, it was about uh, it was about a scientist, uh, and she was married to a policeman, and they had a son who was diagnosed with autism, and they were trying to work out what the ostensible cause of the autism was. So there's a lot of stuff to do with um, scientific evidence and right. police evidence and stuff like that. But of course, I didn't a I didn't know what what the answer was going to be in the story, and b I didn't know anything about how to tell a story. So it was full of pages of sort of turgid dialogue with people <laughs> telling each other things, like the worst info dumps ever. And I, think, <laughs> and I don't think anything ever actually happens. I think it was just pages and pages and pages of people sitting around having sort of cups of coffee and telling each other things. But it was fun, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, oh no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and of course we know the answer now, vaccines. I read it on the internet. <laughs> Of course it's vaccines. So many people on the internet have said it. Don't worry about the polio outbreaks. At least we're going to end autism, apparently. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I think you have to be present to note the sense of uh, sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, with sarcasm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's, what's your writing process now? Like, how do you go about creating... I know there's the term 
Plotters and pantsers. Are you a plotter or a pantser? And what are they? Um, So a plotter is someone who works it all down beforehand, who is the organised type of writer, who is able to write a novel maybe at least once a year and sort of do it from start to finish and knows exactly where the story is going before they start writing the story. Pantser is, that's that's short for doing it by the seat of your pants, and that's when you start out with a vague idea or a vague character or just some kind of inspiration and you just follow this thread to see where it goes. And I'd love to be a plotter but unfortunately I'm a pantser and I really really wish that I wasn't because for me it takes me a long time to write anything mm. and drafts and drafts before I actually know what the story is and who these characters are so as an example drafts of the full novel oh yes oh wow oh yes hard mode yes I have I have an office at the university and that office uh, my desk is piled high with 11 drafts of the novel that I have just finished, or maybe I haven't finished it, who knows. Uh-huh. But yes, and, and it's a long novel, so it's a lot of paper. Wow. A lot of paper. Yes, 11 full drafts. So remember to honour the sacrifice of those trees in your thank you notes. <laughs> I feel bad. No, no, it's necessary, isn't it? Every time I, I use a post-it note, I'm like... I could do this on my computer. I have desktop post-it notes, but I won't remember it. It'll just be a thing on my computer desktop that will blend in to the science fiction background I have on my desktop. So yeah. uh, I need to stick a post-it note on there. Yeah, I do re- try and reuse the paper as much as possible, and I scribble over it and everything. But yeah, so I start off with an idea, like the idea for the latest novel is to write a historical novel about Schrodinger, the quantum physicist who came up with the idea of the cats that yep. goes in the box, the cats that is both alive and dead at the same time. Tell, tell us about the cat, please. <laughs> so Schrodinger was an Austrian physicist who was working in the uh, 20s, sort of post-First World War, and he came up with this beautiful equation, sort of wave equation, by which he can work out what the structure of an atom is. But um, he himself didn't agree with how other people interpreted his equation. He thought the universe was literally physically made out of waves of material all sort of connecting together in some sort of like beautiful interconnected soup Mm. Um, other people said that the wave wasn't real it was just mathematical and the wave was connected to the probability of an event happening before you actually observe that event and Schrodinger argued that that was a kind of ridiculous idea that if you took that to its logical extreme you could have the probability of things happening and then it's only when you observe them that the thing actually happens Mm. So to illustrate this ridiculousness, he puts uh, a fictional cat in a sealed box and with a sort of radioactive bit of poison. And he said that the cat had a 50% um, chance of either living or dying. And classically, we would say that at any point the cat was either alive or dead. So common sense yeah. tells you that. But he said that according to quantum physics, the cat is both alive and dead because the probability waves of it being alive and dead exist, coexist, mm. until you open the box and have a look at it, at which point the waves collapse uh, um, and the cat is either observed to be alive or dead. So this is his sort of cat experiment. And I wanted to write a novel about him because he was a curious kind of um, scientist in many ways. Unlike a lot of scientists who do their best work and they're really super young in their 20s. Mm. He was nearly 
40 when he came up with his best work. And he, he'd been ill in a TB sanatorium in Switzerland where he'd spent several months on and off with his wife and then um, latterly with a mystery woman who wasn't his wife. So there's always this slightly sort of nudge-nudge, wink-wink story about Schrodinger that he went off to this TB sanatorium with his mystery lady right. and came up with a bit of physics. And I didn't really like that kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink aspect to it. I thought that was, it was a more interesting story buried in that gap, in mm. that bit of sort of missing history. So I wrote the novel about it. Right. Um, and it was challenging, I have to say, trying to write a novel about quantum physics and make it interesting and make it interesting to people who don't know anything about it. Sure. Um, and not it just be one long explanation exactly exactly that's right you can't have the info dump you can't have the dreaded info dump of mm-hmm. scientists talking to each other although there is a fair amount of scientists talking to each other in the novel but they're often not talking about science or they're shouting at each other about science so and also I wanted to talk about his wife too who comes across in his official biography as a sort of slightly downtrodden figure who always has to put up with his affairs and his wonderful life and so I wanted to sort of really explain explore her interior life mm-hmm. and show that it was perhaps more interesting than uh, than the official record sure. show. Um, so it's openly fiction then? You're filling in the yeah. gaps? Yes, right. it's clearly fiction. The only... I have historical events. Mm-hmm. It's pinned down to them, the, the two of them going to different places at different times, and I try and make sure that the physics is as accurate as I can possibly make it. But the characters are fictional, and I'm very clear about that. So this is a novel, it's not a biography. If you want the facts, go and read the biography, but mm-hmm. I'm just making stuff up about their lives, basically. Another book that I think has recently come out that is also based on a historical figure is Murmur by Will Eves, which right. is a novel based on the life of Alan Turing, mm-hmm. um, which sounds uh, amazing. So I think it's really interesting that even in recent history, not just in the history of sort of Shakespearean times, even in recent history, there are still so many gaps. There's yeah. so much that we don't know. Mm-hmm. We kind of assume that you know everything about the sort of 20th century, about what happens, and even about famous people, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think fiction is, is really good at sort of opening up those... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of hidden boxes, like showing a cat's sort of boxes. Absolutely. And sort of uh, imagining what, what's inside them, what's going on with the cats inside them. I only found out yesterday, I mean, not that he'd be a likeable character, but no one knows what happened to Mueller, who was, he's the only leading Nazi figure who disappeared and no one knows where he went. You know, everyone else was shot or and tried posthumously at yeah. Nuremberg. No one knows where Mueller went. There's an interesting story in that. Perhaps not a likeable guy, yeah. but I don't think all protagonists... And in fact, I, I am against the idea that all protagonists have to be likeable. They just have to be compelling. Yeah, that's right. I think that's why there's a blandness in... Maybe a blandness in cinema at the moment where everyone's likeable and it's like... It doesn't stop Taxi Driver being an incredible film just because Robert De Niro is like a psychopathic racist yeah (laughs) that's right I think that's really right and I think it's not just in cinema but I have to say also in in fiction Mm -hmm. in um, in literature you have I think there's a pressure on you to write likeable characters Mm -hmm. too often I see readers feedback to be honest that says I didn't like the main character I find it difficult to engage with the main character they weren't likeable and that kind of troubles me because Mm -hmm. it means if we're if we're kind of forced to only write about the nice people it if we're forced 
to change those people to make them nice then yeah. there's a whole bunch of sort of human experience and human emotions that we're not able that, that we're not able to explore in our literature absolutely and I think there's also and because of that there's pressure from publishers to uh, on authors to make their main characters likeable and empathetic mm-hmm. uh, which is a bit troubling in a sense yeah it mm. makes for te- like there's the concept of the Mary Sue and the Gary Stew who are the kind of like super likable uh, kind of flawless heroes mm. and I don't think you get them terribly often because people realise you have to incorporate some f- flaws into them but they like the concept of the Mary, Stew, Mary Sue and the Gary Stew uh, which started in science fiction actually it was a, a bit of Star Trek fan fiction where a woman I uh, can't remember her name but she created a character who was an uh, the worst kind of author self-insert called Mary Sue and it became legendarily bad because she was perfect at everything and that's where the concept comes from and I think you don't find them very often now because people realise they, they become utterly like they make your skin crawl they're that perfect yeah. uh, it'd be like having your first thing you ever wrote accepted by a publisher so you don't make my screen crawl Pepper congratulations (laughs) that's good that's kind of a low bar to (laughs) yeah Yeah. Um, one of my favourite novels actually in fact yeah one of my favourite authors is John Banville Mm -hmm. who tends to write rather unlikable protagonists and I think that's something that he does really well there's still very compelling characters in The Untouchable again a novel inspired by a real person Mm. uh, Anthony Blunt who was an art historian and a spy and he was keeper of the Queen's pictures but he was also one of the sort of Cambridge group of spies Mm -hmm. and this is a novel told from his point of view about his life and he's really not a likeable person at all Mm. but somehow you do like him because he's such a fascinating character and I think Banville is really good at making us see what is appealing about these rather nasty people sure sure I, I don't want to sound arrogant or elitist but I also think sometimes people don't think about their characters deeply enough to see the flaws sometimes. Like, I love superheroes. I love Batman. I love... I mean, the Punisher's an extreme example um, who's like... I mean, he is pitched as the the guy who, who, by contrast, does kill everyone he comes across. But people... People go, oh, but he's such a nice, likeable guy. And I'm like, he dis- Sp- even Spider-Man, friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, descends from the sky uh, without any kind of, like, due process, just batters people, absolutely cripples them, and then, and then just leaves them to be arrested. It's almost fascist, like, and I love that. I'm not, obviously, I hope you people know by now, and hope you know by now, I'm not a fascist, but it's very compelling, but people don't seem to realise that there's something deeply wrong with that idea in these characters that they, they otherwise think are wonderful. James Bond, for example. I'm fascinated by the idea of the character who is socially tolerated because he's useful at carrying out unpleasant things. And if he wasn't so useful 
or, or wasn't on the side of good, then we wouldn't tolerate that person in society. That's right. I think it's really. I think what you're saying about superheroes is is really interesting. We turn a blind eye to the fact that they sort of go off and kill people mm-hmm. and all the rest of it because they are on the the right sides of of the law, as it were. But is that really right? Should we should we start justifying what they do? Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of label them as being the goodies. Yeah. But you know how how much better are they than than the, the sort of baddies? Exactly. Yeah. I love I love that. Like I'm sat here in a Batman T-shirt, and Batman has this no killing policy, and I love the 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 darker versions of heroes. And he, I love how his no po- killing policy is quite arbitrary. Like he can like cripple people for life. He can occasionally vegetabilize them. And but he's not killed them, mm. so he's okay mm. with that. Mm. Like, and I, I think that's an incredibly dark character. Like, technically, mm. they're not the yeah. brain dead, but they're not actual dead. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. And that is a way more interesting character than just good guy Adam West. Absolutely. And actually, going back to the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting how we decide that some of the scientists who worked on that project mm. were good guys, and the scientists who stayed in Nazi Germany to work for the Nazis were the bad guys. Mm. And there's a really interesting um, sort of real-life debate between uh, Heisenberg, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, who stayed in Germany and who led the Nazis' unsuccessful atom bomb project, mm. and Niels Bohr, who who was a Danish a physicist, famously loved by everyone that he worked with, and he um, escaped from Copenhagen to America during the war, and he worked on the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. And everybody still loves Niels Bohr, and everybody uh, admires Heisenberg's work, but he's tainted because he worked for the Nazis. Mm. And yet the fictional Heisenberg says to the fictional Niels Bohr in Michael Frayn's play Copenhagen, I never killed anyone, whereas you are responsible indirectly for thousands of people dying through yeah. your work on the Manhattan Project and yet that never really kind of comes into the equation yeah actually. yeah because we, we we like good guys and bad guys yeah. and, and never the, that's right. the two shall mix or, yeah. or what have you yeah that's right it's fascinating yeah, yeah. Um, is that reflected in your forthcoming Book. Yeah, it kind of is actually. One of the things that, so I think it must have been like the seventh or eighth or ninth draft, I can't remember, of the novel. Uh, a friend of mine who read it for me very kindly pointed out that I could do more work integrating the physics with the politics of the time, uh, so the rise of fashion in the 30s and the 40s, and the fact that Schrodinger was very much sort of an anti Nazi, but he was also kind of really kind of apolitical. He didn't want to get involved, but he did have to escape a couple times from uh, Nazi Germany. He moved from Berlin to England in 1934 and worked at Oxford. Didn't get on at Oxford at all. Well. Mm. He actually moved back to Austria, his home country, in 36, which was an extremely bad move, although he didn't realise it at the time, and then had to escape again after Austria was annexed by the, uh, by the Germans in 38. So I try and look at his interaction with the Nazi regime and really what he how he basically tried to live with both himself and with the regime and in the in the sort of best way possible and he wasn't 
he, he wasn't brilliant. He never so openly condemned what they were doing, but at the same time, he never worked with them, and he was pretty critical of them in private. So it's a, it's a tale of an ordinary human being as they try to cope with, you know, sort of like one of the worst uh, regimes in the world. And I think that's a really interesting tale to tell, again, without reverting to sort of out-and-out heroism or out-and-out sort of bad guy. This is a tale of how, really, how most of us would have behaved in that sort of circumstance. Mm -hmm. So I try and sort of plot his progress. He famously wrote a confession to Hitler when he was living in Austria in 1938 and the Nazis annexed Austria. So... Um, so the, so Germany annexed Austria and Austria afterwards claimed that it had been invaded by the Nazis but of course they, the Austrians had never fought back there mm. wasn't a single sort of shot fired so in fact they, they welcomed the Nazis they wanted to become sort of united with Germany Right. and Schrodinger up until then had been reasonably critical of the Nazis but he wrote a confession to Hitler that was published in all the papers saying how glad he was that Austria was now part of Greater Germany right. and how he was pleased to be part of the fatherland mm. and all the rest of it. And his other science colleagues shunned him because of that. Um, but as he pointed out, he was there at the time. He had to somehow keep living. He didn't want to go off to a concentration camp, so what was he supposed to do? Yeah. So without um, sort of apologising for him, I'm just trying to, to investigate his sort of thought processes and uh, what it's actually like to sort of be faced with that type of situation. Yeah. So you've been, you know, several drafts through this book. You said if it's finished, like, mm. when do you know? <laughs> do you think you're close to finishing it? Uh, I'd like to think so because, um, yeah, I'm not sure the, the, the trees, the paper can take much more. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, of course I finished it two years ago. Right. And my agent sent it out to publishers and it got rejected by some. So she has suggested uh, that I have another go at it, which is why... Sorry, which is why I went back to it and uh, did another draft earlier this year. So I'm not sure you ever really know, to be honest. I think the novel, you just kind of abandon it. It gets to certain points and you know you could either work on it forever mm. or just like give up and walk away. Is that a pantser thing? Because it, like with a plotter thing, I imagine there's more, right, I have reached this point now. Yeah. That's it, the story can... I've, I've fulfilled everything. It's almost like a to-do list. And I've, I've ticked everything off now. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I kind of, with this novel, it kind of does what I wanted it to do. It's mm -hmm. a novel about Schrodinger. It mm -hmm. investigates his physics, his politics and stuff. And yet, even so, there's always something you can do. Um, I think, so I can't remember who it was, but another author said that you always, when you start writing, you always have in mind a sort of palace. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with something that's more like a garden shed. <laughs> so it never, the reality of what you write never meets mm -hmm. uh, your initial expectations expectations and at some point you have to kind of reach an accommodation with that mm -hmm. and say that is not what this novel is about I'm going to try again with the next one it's exactly you know there's that famous quote by Samuel Beckett you know try again fail again fail better every time you just aim to sort of fail better yeah but yeah I have to say I, mean, I really hope this this novel isn't going to go through any more major rewrites uh, if I can't sell it then I can't sell it I'll just right. go, sort of crap on with the next one but have you thought of like 
like self-publishing or yeah I have actually and I might I might do that in the future I'll just sort of see what happens yeah. I think in um, see whether I, I can, I, whether we can sell it but yeah in fact because my first two books were initially published by Freight uh, Publishers in Glasgow and they went bankrupt mm. last year so I actually self-published those books on Amazon the e-books on mm. Amazon yeah and I'm kind of not averse to that at all I think self-publishing is really interesting it's difficult to make it work commercially but you can make it work and I think it's a really interesting model a fair amount of the stigma is lifted as well now I feel I think so. I mean, yeah, the quality control is problematic still, I think. But there is a lot of good stuff. Um, And I think also it's interesting that a lot of established authors self-publish their back catalogue on Mm. Amazon because, of course, they still own the e-book rights because those e-book rights didn't exist. Sure. Original books were published. Clever. I didn't know that. That is clever. Yes. That is very clever. Yes. Um, So I assume we don't know when we can get hold of this book for ourselves then and any time frame anything who knows okay but we can get your current books can't we yes uh, how can we get your current books um on amazon uh if you want ebooks or i have uh, uh, an increasingly dwindling and precious stack of the physical books in in my home so you can uh, contact me via my um websites just drop me a line via my website if you want one of my real books which is um, my website, oh yeah, uh, website address. Fortunately, I'm the only Pippa Goldschmidt online, so it's actually really easy to find oh, me. Oh, good. I'm www.pippagoldschmidt.co.uk. Excellent. And I'm on Twitter too. And there's contact details on there. Yeah, there's a contact form. Uh, there's stuff about the books if you yes. do want to yes. know more That's about right. the books themselves. Yes. And yes. yeah, there is a contact form on there there's as well. about me and my writing in general uh-huh. and what I like to write about. Um, Anything that has anything that you're looking forward to coming out or that you've read recently you can recommend for people? I have a terrible memory for stuff, but the book I'm reading right now I'm hugely enjoying, and that is Circe by Madeline Miller. So this is already a bestseller, so it's not like you're not going to know about it, but I've just picked it up and it's engrossing. It's like fantasy in a sense. It's the tale of an ancient Greek myth that's um, been told from the woman's point of view. Cool. Circe was, uh, was the first witch, um, and she lived by herself. She was uh, exiled to an island by and there she met Odysseus on the way back from the uh, Trojan War and she turned his men into pigs, into swine and it's her story, it's her story of how she becomes a witch and what, how she lives on the island and I'm absolutely engrossed by it, the, the, the writing is fantastic mm-hmm. it's beautiful, it's like a fantastical uh, tale in the sense of a witch living by herself in ancient Greek times and I'm just like, it's one of those really immersive novels yeah where you just you just see this world. I love ancient Greek uh, stories myself, so that does sound so, right up my so do I. So up do my I. street. So thank you so much for this That's conversation. Right. Uh, is there um, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I can't think of anything really, apart from the fact that this is around the time of the fiftieth anniversary of the uh, Apollo eleven mm-hmm. landings on the moon, which I think is really exciting, and. There's going to be a lot of discussion about that. There already is a lot of discussion about that, what it means to have gone to the moon, why we haven't gone there for nearly 50 years now, since 1972, who will get to the moon. And this is uh, another thing that I'm really interested in exploring in fiction, is about who gets to go into outer space.
place who controls that and mm. why and how and what are our sort of collective expectations for outer space. No, no, that's a that's a great thing to be mindful of at this time. Hmm. Uh, it's, if you're listening in the UK, it's a very divisive time. Frank, I mean, if you're listening in America, it's a divisive time. And what I love about going to the moon is when we say we, we mean humanity, not yeah. just yeah. the English or the Scottish or the British or the Americans. That's right. And I think it's really interesting to go back and read the tales of Americans and the Soviets, mm. uh, the astronauts and the cosmonauts, and the respect that they had for each other, yeah. even when their countries were sort of like ideologically sort of pitted against each other. When these guys met, although they sort of disagreed, uh, they, they still had so much respect for what they'd, what they'd achieved. Yeah. They, they, they were the ones taking the risks. Mm-hmm. Them and the dogs and the monkeys. Yeah. Heartbreak. <laughs> Don't read about Laika if you like dogs. Oh, God, no. Um, so on that depressing note, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Rob. It's been great. Thank you. <laughs> That was good, wasn't it? Great little interview, if I do say so myself. Thank you again to Pippa for being such a good guest. And remember, you can hear an extended version of that interview and all our other ones by joining our Patreon. Look for the Soundwave podcast, Receptor in Terrorist Level. And you can find links for buying Pippa's books at pippagoldschmidt.co.uk. To play us out, we've got the new single from Emmy James, a.k.a. Gordon from L-Space, who have previously been featured on Soundwave. On his solo EP, Social Capital, he once again draws on his familiar sci-fi influences and futuristic synths, but this time in a strictly instrumental and neoclassical context that will easily please existing fans of his musical output while offering them something new. I've been your host, RJ Bailey. Let me know your favourite sci-fi-inspired music or if you've got some of your own you'd like to share with our audience. Then tweet me, at RJ Bailey, or email me with it, rjbailey at shorelineofinfinity.com. This is Habitus One. Until next time, I will see you in the sound wave.
Soundwave was hosted, written, and produced by me, director, overtech, verbistect, loquinist, voxtect, RJ Bailey. Produced by overtech, Noel Chidwick. Music by tunetect, Alex Storer. Stories were created by verbis curate voxtects, Debbie Cannon and Jonathan Whiteside. And poetry was curated by verbis curate, Russell Jones. The Applebee was written by K.E. McPhee and narrated by Voxtect Ben Blow. South was written by Marge Simon, not Marge Simpson, as I've had to cut out many times during this podcast, narrated by Voxtect Sue Guyford. Sonic Space was produced and presented by myself, R.J. Bailey, and was guested by Dr. Pippa Goldschmidt, whose writing can be found via her website, pippagoldschmidt.co.uk. The song Habitus One was by Emmy James from the EP Social Capital. And the artwork for the episode is by Mark Toner. Shoreline of Infinity's website is shorelineofinfinity.com and our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash shorelineofinfinity. Follow us on Twitter at shorelineofinfinity or me personally at RJ Bailey and our Facebook page facebook.com forward slash shorelineofinfinity. 66.6% of the psychic energy generated by this will be donated to the survivors of the 236th Greygast Cyclin Intersector War Fund.